Welcome to You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors. I'm Ray Ortland. This is a podcast from the Gospel Coalition, and I am with my friend, Sam Alberry. Hey, Ray. Sam, I got a question for you. What is your favorite piece um, of music? You gave me a warning, so I was able to think about this, and I think it is Mozart's 13th Piano Concerto, um, which I heard a part of on the radio when I was about 14 years old and suddenly discovered this kind of music I'd never heard before and I was captivated by it. Hmm. Um, and it, it was the, that piece was the gateway drug for me into <laughs> classical music and a whole load of other things too. But um, yeah, that, that I will always come back to, the, to oh, that piece great. of music. Oh, that's great. Now, I would have to say... Uh, it's. It would be um, I, immediately. I think of John Fogerty and Creedence Clearwater Revival. I think of James Brown, and I think of George Frederick. Okay, so you're giving yourself more answers than I was allowed. <laughs> I know. I'm cheating. Now, Ray. Just while we're on that, um, not necessarily your favorite piece of music, but what do you listen to the most when you're writing sermons? Hmm. Well, I can answer that from having lived in your house. I've I've heard many a Ray Ortland sermon being written to the Sense and Sensibility yes, it soundtrack. It is magnificent. It is uh, perfect ambient music without demanding my primary attention, but with providing a sort of uh, mental, psychological environment in which I can think. I love the Sense and Sensibility soundtrack. If there's a frequency indicator on my laptop playlist, I'm sure that is number one. Yeah, I love it. Great. Okay. Now, in this episode, Sam... Let's connect the dots between gospel culture and renewal and revival and awakening. Uh, we, you and I, and every young pastor listening to this, here's what we are not giving our lives to. We are not giving our lives to merely doing a job, managing a religious institution, kind of a, a community center called a church, and we're keeping the factions well balanced and you know providing services picking up a monthly paycheck and waiting it out until retirement that is not what the lord called us to that is not what we've given ourselves to what we want is nothing less than another great awakening mm. sweeping over the world with thousands and thousands of conversions and churches bursting at mm. the seams now you and so um forth. Several years ago, you wrote a book on revival, and I remember the, this is before I even knew you, but I remember the first paragraph really stuck with me, because you, you talked about how revival isn't some other kind of work God just randomly decides to do every once in a while. It's the regular ministry of the gospel with unusual amounts of fruit and, and effectiveness. I think you said God just hits the fast forward button. It's it's the normal ministry that God has called us to, but with abnormal results. Is that it's fair? It's like a, a wonderful power surge. It's, it's pastors like us pursuing the normal ministry of the gospel in both doctrine and culture. And God, you know, it's a wonderful thing when God blesses the work of our hands. It's an even more wonderful thing, thing when God takes up the work in his own hands. And we find our ministries accomplishing in three months what otherwise it would take 30 years to accomplish. God is able to do that. That's what we long for. 
that's what and we, we long for that not because we want to be there at the moment and sort of getting some of the glory of being one of the big people around when it all ha- happens and kicks off we we long for that because we long for the name of Jesus to be known, don't we? Yes. He deserves yes. to be. So give us a verse of scripture where that would be an entry point for us to consider gospel culture and... Well, there, there are many we could use. We've talked already about, uh, this is how all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. That's, that's a key verse on this. It shows us the direct relationship between the cultivation of gospel culture and being compelling to a watching world. A verse I keep coming back to is is that kind of programmatic verse, Mark one fifteen, when Jesus, his first public words in Mark's gospel, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That verse strikes me because it reminds me of how central and unavoidable repentance is. That There is no gospel without repentance. And Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, really helped me on this to see, to see that repentance isn't how we work our way up to the gospel. We repent our way into God's good books. Repentance is the fruit of the gospel. We get to repent now. That itself is good news. But it makes me realize as well, we're not going to see any significant work of the Lord that isn't accompanied by significant repentance. Uh, we've, we've talked about how foundational honesty is and confession and true revival, as opposed to kind of something counterfeit, will have repentance and confession of sin at the heart of it. Read that verse again from Mark 1. Would the you? time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Wow. So the time is fulfilled. God has been preparing us for a significant moment. We mm-hmm. have funneled down to that moment. The kingdom is at hand now is the time for a breakthrough where where God's kingdom um, loveless in the dynamics of spiritual life talks about power encounters mm. uh, where where the gospel collides with the powers and systems of this world and the gospel wins and there's a breakthrough yeah and we as you're as you're saying I'm thinking out loud here Sam because I hadn't thought of that verse in this connection that our pathway into that, the entry point for us, our part is to repent mm. and dare to believe that God rescues guilty people who have no excuses, no leverage, no traction, guilty people for the sake of Christ and his yeah. finished work on the cross. And, and this is something I heard you say in a sermon on Isaiah 40 a couple of years ago now, but you said something to the effect that the church shouldn't expect to see repentance in the world until the world is seeing repentance in the church. So we, we can't be thinking, yeah, but we, I wish there was revival. I wish all these you know pagan people around me would repent. If we're not actually modeling repentance ourselves. I deeply believe that. That's right. If, if we are yelling at our generation as the naughty kids telling them, get off my lawn, let's not expect the gospel to to make any headway at all. Yeah. Uh, let's be the first to repent and believe the gospel. And as you say, that is actually a privilege. I remember as, as a kid uh, growing up in that church uh, in a Sunday morning service, and this was a pretty well put together group of people. I mean, there were Caltech profs at that church there in Pasadena. Mm-hmm. There were Fuller Seminary profs. JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, was close by a lot of scientists, and as well as stay-at-home moms and real estate agents and wonderful people. And 
we as a church had a, it's probably safe to say, a pretty generous sense of ourselves. <laughs> and so one Sunday, my dad's up there preaching, minding his own business. He's not even in a concluding appeal. He's maybe halfway through the sermon. He's lifting up the Lord. And, and the choir is in the choir loft behind him, in their choir robes. This is old school. And I'm not paying much attention. I'm doodling on the bulletin or something. How old are you at this point? Oh, maybe 10 or 12. Yeah. Okay. So, and I'm seeing Ed Fisher get up quietly from the base section of the choir. He's a godly man, one of the father figures in the church. Everybody respected him. And he is being, the Holy Spirit is pressing the gospel into his soul such that Ed feels like, I have got to get right with God. Now, Dad wasn't bearing down on us. He was just preaching Christ. But God, the Holy our spiritual forefathers, Sam, used to call this the presidency of the Holy Spirit. Wow. The Holy Spirit presiding over the meeting of God's people on the Lord's Day. So anyway, Ed gets up there quietly, no self-display comes down, kneels at the communion table in repentance. And Lita Fisher, his wife, in the alto section, she's not going to let that happen. I, you know, let him stick his neck out alone. So she comes down and she kneels beside him. And I'm thinking, huh, that's odd. What are they doing? And suddenly I, I see that people from all over the congregation are without any appeal from the front, quietly coming to the front of the church, getting down on their knees, and doing serious business with God. And Dad was surprised. This wasn't part of the service plan. You know, I, it reminds me of Acts chapter 2. Suddenly, there came from heaven hmm. something that the people hadn't even counted on. Anyway, so dad has the sensitivity to stand back, stop preaching, and go to prayer. And Marsha Foxgrover, the organist over here on my right, she has the sensitivity to get onto the organ bench and begin to play in some quiet, suitable way. And the Holy Spirit of God came down and took over the service. Mm. As we, as a church, this was not isolated individuals. Again, we're talking about gospel culture. We're talking about spiritual realities we share together as a whole church body. We, as a church, were moved upon by God. We, as a church, went into repentance. And you know, Sam, there were several Sundays along the way like that. Wow. It didn't happen just once. And it wasn't a panacea. It didn't solve all of our problems. I'm going to guess, Dad never told me, but I'm going to guess that the pastoral burden the next few weeks increased because all the mess, you know, came up to the surface yeah. and had to be gently addressed and people had to be helped. But when a church dip is, is lifted out of the service plan into the felt presence of God, such that we're all down on our faces before the Lord, which is where we belong, that church can never again say, oh, we would never do that. Yeah. We would never go there because it's part of our reality now. It opens more doors for greater blessing in the future. Yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, wonderful, isn't it? You, you, you hear of that and then you, you, you don't want anything less than that. Um, it strikes me that repentance is always to some extent, embarrassing. I mean, it's embarrassing for that man to, to walk up to the communion table and, and to kneel. That's, that's showing in front of everyone that he's not the completely put-together, amazing Christian they might think he is, but actually he's, he's a man who is carrying remaining sin that needs to be brought to the Lord. Um, but repentance 
never harms the reputation of Jesus. Our repentance never harms the reputation of Jesus. It may be a difficult step for us to take. It may be embarrassing. It may mean letting go of reputation and kind of being held in a certain esteem by other people if we have to repent. But it, it is always honouring to Jesus, isn't it? Because it's another way of saying, I'm, I'm the needy one, he is the sufficient one, rather than I'm the impressive one and he's the even more impressive one. It is, it is glorious to preach the doctrine of the all-sufficiency of Christ. It is another thing altogether, and even more glorious, to be living proof of the all-sufficiency of Christ by being a churches where repentance is the tone and mm. the culture and honesty, owning up, admitting shortcomings, weaknesses, failings, putting these things out in the open without self-defense, but in real openness before the Lord. That is powerful. I can't think of anything that we American Christians uh, would benefit from more than what if, what if thousands of churches across the country in the next six months make repentance an unavoidable issue for everybody? What if yeah. we go there first? And that, that's the key, isn't it? it? It's easy to make repentance an issue for everybody else in the sense of I can go around telling everybody else what they need to repent of. It's, it's something else when I'm, I'm actually making my own repentance more of an issue, when I'm, I'm more convicted of my sin than somebody else's. Yeah. I have to face myself with these questions very personally and demand of myself that I be honest. Am I, am I more eager for other people to go into repentance than I am to go into my own repentance? I've got to be honest with myself about that. Every single one of us does. Um, but this is, as you say in that verse in Mark chapter 1, that's the entry point for kingdom powers to come in and push back and displace demonic powers. Mm. This, this is glorious. This is powerful. If the gospel coalition stands for anything, it stands for gospel doctrine, creating gospel culture, being detonated with the power of the Holy Spirit yeah. to make Jesus not ignorable in our country. Yeah. Wow. Here's, here's a, a true story from Christian history about repentance, uh, a, a whole shared culture of repentance being blessed by God with unusual power. This is from uh, Korea in 1907, a gathering of about 1,500 Christian leaders in the capital city. And these were wonderful people and really Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, solid, legit brothers and sisters who want to live for the Lord just the way you and I do, Sam, and every young pastor listening to this right now. And at this, at this moment, on this occasion... God blessed them unusually, and not because the leader or scattered individuals here and there went into repentance, because they went there altogether. They experienced and discovered a culture of repentance. There was a Presbyterian missionary there who left an eyewitness account of what happened on that occasion. Let me just read this paragraph. This is Korea, 1907. Then began a meeting, the like of which I had never seen before, nor wish to see again, unless in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night. 
pale and trembling with emotion, in agony of mind and body, guilty souls, standing in the white light of judgment, saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness. You know, Sam, part of my problem is hypocritical, nicey-nice words that I put upon serious sins, Mm. like, I slipped up, or something happened. What a hypocritical evasion. That quenches the power of the Holy Spirit. So their sins rose up in all their vileness. Until shame and grief and self-loathing took possession, pride was driven out. The face of man was forgotten. Looking up to heaven to Jesus, whom they had betrayed, they cried out with wailing, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten. Nothing else mattered. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself seemed of small consequence if only God forgave. And then the missionary says, we may have other theories of the desirability or undesirability of the public confession of sin. I have had my opinions, but I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, and this was a group of Christian leaders, Sam. Mm. This was not an evangelistic meeting. It was pastors, elders, missionaries, and so forth. I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession, and no power on earth can stop it. And the scholar who left us with that account in this uh, journal article that I have here proposes that it was, it was that occasion and other occasions like it in Korea in 1907 that prepared the Korean church for subsequent decades of foreign invasion and occupation and oppression. Mm. Now, how did God prepare his precious church in Korea to endure that? He did not call them to political dominance. Mm -hmm. He did not call them merely to preaching. He called them to repentance. They became fortified not by admiring their strengths, but by facing their weaknesses and admitting those things. Mm. And the power of the risen Christ came down and enabled them to remain resilient for decades. And the Korean church is a force to be reckoned with to this day. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's it's so compelling. Um, you tell us about a lot of people in England might not know about the, the kind of the Jesus movement thing in, in L.A., that. You were around during that time, weren't you? Tell us what, what, what on earth happened. Oh, gosh. <laughs> From about 1968, 69 till about 1972, <laughs> Sam, you cannot imagine the crazy joy that just came down from above. I mean, 1968 was a horrible year. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. The Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August turned into riots in the streets. 1968 was a year from hell, and our nation was in agony. And in the midst of all that darkness and all that pain and confusion and distress and upheaval, the Holy Spirit... Sam, these eyes saw the power of God come down on L.A. and change the subject on the streets of Los Angeles from drugs and revolution to Jesus and the gospel. I do not believe that the risen Christ is intimidated by Los Angeles because of what I saw and what I experienced. And I saw my generation 
thousands of crazy, hippie, you know, radical, progressive, wacko people in my generation, we pivoted. We did a 180, and instead of running away from Jesus, we started running toward him with all our might. We could not believe our luck. Are you selling, telling me that God Almighty in heaven above does not despise me, but actually he knows everything about me and still loves me and is prepared to forgive me and give me my life back after I've thrown it away a thousand times? Are you kidding me? I mean, sign me up. My whole generation, we just, <laughs> we totally resonated with that. And so I remember Sam, for example, being at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in 1971, and they were having church meetings five nights a week to accommodate the crowds, to meet the demand. Nobody was telling my crazy generation to go to church. We did not listen to the (laughs) grown-ups. We couldn't stay away because something was happening in the churches, the churches that were open. Something was happening so magnetic so captivating, so heart-freeing, so culturally relevant, so joyous, so crazy fun, we wouldn't want to be anywhere else. It's unimaginable. And having had that experience, Sam, I was ruined at age 19, 20. I just thought, well, this is ministry. This is, this is how we roll. This is how it goes. And all my life, um, as you said a few minutes ago, I mean, who would want anything else? All my life, I've been praying and agitating for more of the same. I want young pastors of the next generation to experience that and even more greatly. I can't imagine anything more worthy of my all than young pastors entering into that. Wow. I mean, there's, and there's no good reason the risen Christ can't do that again. Um, a, a verse I keep coming back to is in Isaiah 9, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So everything is already going Jesus' way. It's not like we're, we're praying against the grain of what God is wanting to do in the world. We're just asking him to hasten the increase of the government of Jesus. And you and I just deeply believe, as does every young pastor listening to this podcast, that our better future is not in us polishing up our images and perfecting our cool and broadening the reach of our swagger. We regard all such things with tragic contempt. And every one of us longs for, prays for, is open to the fullness of the power of God. Paul Paul said to the Romans, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. In Romans, I forget, chapter 15 or 16. There is the blessing of Christ, and there is the fullness of the blessing. That's what we long for. And we get there, not by presenting our credentials to God so that he's impressed, but by presenting our sins and failings as betrayals to be forgiven. Um, John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. We won't see the Lord increasing without actually decreasing ourselves, will we? And what I find so captivating about all this that we're considering here, Sam, is what if all of us together, a whole generation of pastors, I'm on my way out, so many of the guys listening to this podcast are on their way in, right? 
okay? And they're on that upward trajectory of ministry growth and development and learning and so forth. What if we make our top priority that we will be men together, men of repentance? What if we slit our wrists, you know, and, and become blood brothers to spend our lives in radical openness to whatever the risen Christ wants to do next through our repentance, not through our correctness, yeah. but through our need. Through our lowness, lowness rather than through our exaltedness. Um, I've not read, there's, there are various books that I haven't read, but the title has ministered to me, even though I've never opened the front cover. Um, I think of Piper's God is the Gospel. I've not read that, but the, the title has ministered to me. Or Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot's book that I've seen on your coffee table in your lounge. And that suffering is never wasted. Is Suffer, it? Suffering is not for nothing. Suffering is never for nothing. And here's another one. Um, I think it's Michael Griffiths wrote a book I've seen around and never, never actually read, but it's "Give Up Your Small Ambitions." Mm. Oh, I love that. Isn't that a great title? Yes. And I've no idea. I'm, you know, he was a wonderful missionary statesman, so I'm sure it was. You know, seek to, seek to do great things for the Lord rather than small things for the Lord, or something like that. But I, it, that that comes to mind as we discuss this whole issue of. Let's let's be hungry for and praying for that kind of detonation of for repentance to go viral. And here's the great thing for every young pastor listening to this: you might be serving a, a small church, a medium-sized church, a large church, whatever, whatever your ministry context. Your church right now is fully equipped in every essential for nothing less than the the next great awakening. You have the gospel in doctrine and culture, and your church is growing in both respects. You are cultivating them, helping them, serving them in that way, and you have the risen Christ above. He doesn't love some other church more than he loves you in your church. And he is able, fully able, to pour out upon you his spirit of power at any time, you do not need to forsake your ministry location for some other more advantageous location, as if that change of location would put you under the blessing of the Lord. Yeah, Grace, Grace doesn't have a zip code. Wow. <laughs> oh my goodness, Sam Aubrey, what if that's true? <laughs> yeah, it, it's not where we are horizontally that's the key locator here, it's where we are vertically, isn't it? If we can go low before the Lord, we are in exactly the right place for him to to bring blessing. James 4 verse 2 haunts me because he says, you do not have because you do not ask. And I wonder how how much we aren't praying for the next great awakening and that whether that's a reason we don't see it. Okay, let's do this, Sam. Why don't you lead us in prayer right now? Uh, let's ask the Lord and then um, I'll close the podcast. Great. Father, we, we love you. We... We trust you, and we believe that you are capable of all things, and that in your sovereignty you can bring about a widespread movement of of people coming to Jesus. You can bring about widespread repentance. Um, You are fully able to do that, Lord. We we know of times you've done that in the past, and Father, we long to see that. Um, We long to see that in our own day, not because we think we're worthy of being involved with such things, but because we we long for, for Jesus to be 
to be known as he deserves to be. Uh, we're jealous, Lord, for him to be known. Uh, we know that the, the needy people all around us most need him above all other things. Father, we know that we need a fresh vision of Christ ourselves. Um, we always need our view of Jesus to be, to be increased. So, Father, we, we pray for we pray for an outpouring of, of your spirit that prompts widespread repentance. And Father, we, we pray that you might start in our own hearts, um, that we would not be above public repentance, that we would not be above confessing our sins to others, that we would be not interested in saving our own face, but in seeing yours. Um, Father, help us to to rid ourselves of, of self-importance, uh, to rid ourselves of love of reputation, um, help us as, as Christian leaders to be willing to go low before you. Help us to embody a kind of repentance that will help other people to repent in their own lives. Father, help us not to wait for other people to repent first. Help us to take that first step. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would make yourself known again. Um, where I'm from in the UK, where we are now in the US, Lord, there is such a need for the gospel. So help us as your people not to be cantankerous about that, but to be humbled by that need and to recognise that that need, that the ground zero for it has to be in our own hearts, in our own lives. And Father, we pray in the name of the one whose government is is always increasing. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. You know, as you were praying, I was thinking, am I willing to pay that price? Am I willing to face anything and admit what really needs to be admitted and confessed? So our next and final podcast in the series will be on the, the cost of developing gospel culture in our churches. But before we close this out, we want to thank again our friends at Crossway Books who sponsor this podcast. And I want to mention a Crossway publication that's very dear to me. It's by my own wife, Jannie, my historically epic wife, Jannie Ortland, and her recent publication with Crossway is Help, I'm Married to My Pastor. <laughs> oh no, what does that say about me? <laughs> And the subtitle is Encouragement for Ministry Wives and Those Who Love Them. So this book helps a pastor's wife feel less alone, less isolated, more understood, and more supported. And at the end of each chapter, there is a brief paragraph for the ministry wife's husband, pastor husband, and it's a way for the pastor, husband, and wife to have a follow-up conversation together hmm. on each aspect of the book so that they can go to a new place together, a new place of understanding and sympathy and gentle honesty together, and, and more solidarity, uh, more resilience, and more energy, and more confidence together as a ministry couple. So, wow. help, I'm married to my pastor, encouragement for ministry wives and those who love them. Bye, Jannie Ortland. I, as you know, I'm not married. Many of our listeners will be. And 
I'm guessing, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, pastors won't see their ministries flourish if their wives are withering. Okay, Sam, thank you for that. I need to get home right away and <laughs> take care of my wife. <laughs> Reoxygenate her heart. Okay, great. Thanks. See you next time, guys. We know you have a ton to do these days, and so it means a lot to us that you would listen to the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Young Pastors. Do visit tgc.org podcasts for more episodes, and it would be great if you'd subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. Spotify, wherever you listen, wherever you hang out. Thanks. The You're Not Crazy podcast was made possible by multiple team members at TGC. That team includes the hosts of the show, Ray Ortland and Sam Alberry, as well as Stephen Morales and Andrew LaPara as executive producer and producer. Heather Farrell, our podcast lead. Gabriel Reyes, our graphic designer. And Josh Diaz, our audio engineer. You're Not Crazy is a part of the Gospel Coalition Podcast Network. You can find more podcasts at tgc.org forward slash podcasts.